Podcast, episode 41. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brad Schaefer, uh, who's a distinguished professor in the Department of Evolutionary Biology and the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, Dr. Schaefer has published uh, over 300 peer-reviewed uh, publications ranging on topics from invasive species ecology uh, to different aspects of quantitative genetics and everything in between. Uh, he's also done a lot of work with turtles and turtle phy phylogenetics and relationships. Uh, we're really excited to talk to him today. So thanks for coming on. Be here. Ken, do you want to start us off with the first question? All right. Um, this is a first question that we ask pretty much everybody that comes on our podcast. Um, how did you get interested in turtles? How did I get interested in turtles? Um, yeah. Well, so... I've been interested in turtles since, oh, I don't know, probably I was four, something like that. So I'm one of, I always think there's kind of two types of people. There's people who took a class in college or something, and that sort of changed their life. And uh, there's other people who just for whatever crazy reason, just became sort of mildly obsessed with a group of animals when they were a little kid and I was that I was that latter latter case. So I was raised in Connecticut, although I've spent the vast majority of my life in California. And I was raised in a little town outside of New Haven, Connecticut. We had a pond. That pond had some snapping turtles in it. I loved them. I, you know, caught them and played with them and raised them and did all kinds of stuff. And that's what got me interested. And then um and then that took me through all kinds of different aspects of, of turtle biology and learning about turtles and where the world of, of turtle systematics and stuff was at. Um, as I was in high school, I just sort of developed that interest on my own. So that's where I started. That's interesting. Well, th that was something I was sort of curious about because for me, it's, it's sort of, I wouldn't inherently be interested in the genetics aspect and the classification aspect of things. And the more the, the, the realm of things you can't see, the coding of the organism. Uh -huh. And it's something that for me was born out of looking at pond turtles and sliders and thinking that there's something to this that's more than you see at the surface. I'm, I'm curious if your interest in, the, in genetics and evolutionary biology was something that, we, that came from your interest in the animals, or was that a separate interest that developed? Yeah. Well, um, it was, it was, it was, more or less a separate interest, but but so the history there is that, um, or or the pathway is that um, you know I mean most little kids aren't interested in genetics; they don't even know what it is. And I certainly was was one of those little kids. Um, we had no science in our family. My parents didn't go to college, um, you know, so, so there wasn't a, a deep history of any of that kind of more academic stuff going on. A lot of respect for education, but yeah. but not a lot of history with it. And for me, um, I was always interested in evolutionary biology. I was always interested in the process of speciation. I was in how the process of speciation plays out then to generate closely related and less closely related sets of species. That's phylogeny in many ways. I always just found that to be an interesting puzzle and, and um, something that I cared about a lot. And when I was an undergraduate, 
so that was in the 1970s, the early and mid 70s. And that's when genetics was just starting to be applied to natural populations to learn about everything from sort of classical population genetics to uh, aspects of evolution or biology, phylogeny, species limitation. And so that was in the old days of alzheimer electrophoresis. That was when it was yeah. just getting started. People were just starting to travel with liquid nitrogen tanks to get tissue samples. And um, as an undergraduate, first at UC Santa Barbara and then at UC Berkeley, um, I was exposed to that and I just thought, this is really cool. And really again, cool. you know, not not because I was enamored with genetics, but because in my mind, it just opened up windows and doors and opportunities to learn about the ecology and natural history and biology of reptiles and amphibians and in, in ways that, you know, it just couldn't before, you know, I mean, doing long-term market capture studies is a very, very difficult time-consuming thing to do, especially with long-lived organisms like turtles, but you can learn an awful lot about movement patterns by studying population genetics. And that just really, you know, spoke to me. So, so I kind of came at it from that point of view. I mean, the focus was, it, it still is for me, has always been, I want to learn more about the animals. Yeah, I like the animals, I love the animals, I want to conserve the animals. And I have always viewed the genetic tools that were available as, as tools that would let me do that in a more complete way and a more satisfying way. That's really interesting. And it's, uh, it, it's a very different approach. It's, there, there's sort of a physical and, and the reality you can see, but then that, there's that microscopic level uh, of detail that, that it's not everyone's area of interest, but that, that you found that is... Yeah. But, but but if you think about, say, the, you know, the area of molecular ecology, well, you know, the ecology is what's at the center of that or, or for most people. Most people don't really care about the molecular side of it too much. You know, how you score a microsatellite or why, why some genetic variant, you know, came into being or exists or, you know, what difference it makes to the organisms in many ways. Um, what they care about is... The ecology they want to understand the population size they want to understand the history of population increases or decreases they want to understand who mates with who they want to understand if that clutch of turtle eggs had more than one father um you know th those are the things they want to understand in the molecular i mean that's that's the window that's the opportunity that lets you figure that stuff out and that's what's cool. I mean, for most of us, that's what's cool about it. Right. The code, the tools. That's yeah, it's tools it's it's a tool. To right. figure out a yeah. story. It's yeah. and to to figure out the ecology that you'll really understand. Right. Yeah. So I, I think we can sort of jump right into this. And that that's kind of the, the fascinating landscape we want to discuss with you. Um, there's something about turtles just right away uh that I think it, it's good to discuss. This is an area for a lot of people that is somewhat foreign. Um, but turtles, typically, when you're analyzing genetic data, it's all about the rates of change of single nucleotides. And, and that's what sort of at the, the gene level and, and the genome level changes. But with turtles, the rate of that evolution is slower than mm -hmm. in, most, in most vertebrates, tetrapods, or amniotes. And I, I'm sort of curious, that's a fact. But why? 
why is that something that's that's why does so are you are you asking why is that the case for turtles or are you asking what are the repercussions of that for studying turtles i would say both of those things <laughs> yes okay. yeah so why is it the case i mean we don't know for sure but but it's it's linked to generation times so turtles turtles have they have long lifespans they also tend to have long times to um long generation times right so the amount of time it takes for a turtle to go from an egg to being a sexually mature adult is is very long right you know i mean if you think about it it's you know it's on the same order of magnitude as humans right it's usually about a dozen years or so is is about the time it takes you know for a green sea turtle it's 30 years you know for a painted turtle it might be five or six but but it's 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 pretty long as as these things go for yeah. vertebrates and the that you know evolution occurs by you know accumulate accumulating mutations and then passing those on to your offspring and you know recombination and other things that happen um that you we all remember hopefully from our introductory genetics classes and those those basically happen once per generation so if you are thinking about the rate of change at the genetic level in years well if you pack eight generations eight opportunities for change into a century it means you're going to get less change than if you pack a hundred which is what you know a house mouse does or 200 into a century right and it's just you know the generation time is long that means the rate of change is is slow and that's you know it's true for long-lived organisms with long generation times in general there may be something more going on with turtles um they have relatively low metabolic rates and there's some you know some connections between your basal metabolic rate and the the rate of molecular evolution you know so they're ectotherms a lot of them hibernate a lot of them really slow down metabolically and that has some repercussions um so so that's you know as best as we understand it or at least as best as i understand it um those are the the sort of basic reasons why it's slow now the repercussions of that for studying turtles um i mean just just remember that for for almost anything where you're using DNA sequences to learn about organisms. It's all about, you know, similarities and differences, right? So just to take an example, um, if, if you've got a clutch of eggs of a marine turtle or a painted turtle or whatever turtle you like, you know, you've got a, a pile of eggs, a question you might be really interested in is, it, I mean, you know, presumably one female is the mom of all of those eggs. What you don't know is whether one male is the father of all those eggs. It could be debated and maybe his sperm, you know, fertilized all of them, or maybe she mated with a couple of males. And there's, and so in that clutch of eggs, there are full sibs that have the same mother and father, and there are half sibs that have the same mom, but different fathers. And those are quite different. There's all kinds, and there's all kinds of reasons why one might be curious about that. Um, well, 
how do you figure that out? I mean, basically, at the sort of simplest level, you sequence a bunch of DNA from each one of those hatchlings, and you say, is there you know, a pile of them that are all genetically quite similar, because right. they have the same mother and father, and another pile that are similar to themselves, but different from the first pile. And that's because they have different fathers, okay? Although they have the same mom. And that more or less, that's how you figure that out, okay? Well, if the, if the rate of accumulation of mutations is really slow, then you, you just you don't have as much information to identify those differences, right. right? Because you just haven't. I mean, so if if there were two fathers, but those two fathers were themselves, you know, shared a common ancestor a few generations ago, if the rate of mutation is really slow, then you're not going to be able to distinguish them, and so you're going to miss it. And so, and so, basically, it 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 sets limitations on being able to, to use genetic data to, um, to learn about very recent things in the, in the recent past. Yeah. Um, you know, so similarly, you might, if you're a conservation biologist, be interested in whether a road is a barrier to movement of turtles on either side of the road. Okay, well, you know, that road went in 50 years ago or 100 years ago or whenever it went in, okay? You know, so what do you have to do? You, you you kind of have to see differences across that road that have accumulated over that amount of time. And, you know, if, if the road went in 50 years ago, I mean, some of the same turtles that were there before the road went in may still be living there. And so, you know, they're telling you about what happened before the road based on their genetics. And, 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 and you know, whereas if those were fruit flies, and every 90 days, the population turned over, there'd be lots and lots and lots of opportunity for differences, Yeah, right? right? Whereas with a long wave, the animal with long generation times like a turtle, it just takes time to accumulate things because the rate of evolution is slow. So it makes it much harder to learn about things that happened in calendar years recently, right? Because it might just be one generation. Yeah, right. Yeah. You've just got less yeah. data in a you've set got, period you've of got time. Less, you've got less time for differences to accumulate. Right. And in many, many cases, you know, differences versus similarities is is the key thing that you're using to learn about them. Right. Right. And you just haven't had enough time for those to accumulate. Now, we can make up for that nowadays to some extent because, you know, we can sequence the whole genome of the turtle. Yeah. And that means you know the average turtle has you know as 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 you said michael that you know we we focus on these nucleotides you know those are the building blocks of your chromosomes and your dna and the average turtle has about two and a half billion unique nucleotides in its genome operable with humans so yeah i mean it, it's it's most turtles are a little bit bigger than humans yeah um, and um and and but but they're very comparable and um and so that means that any given nucleotide may not have much information in it because of time and slow mutation rates but there's a lot of them yeah two and a half billion is a lot of opportunities and so if you can sequence and and one of the the 
most important and, and exciting directions that, that have emerged in using genetics to study evolution and to study ecology is that it's getting easier and easier and easier to sequence the entire genome and sequence it well so that there's very few errors. And that just gives you, you know, it gives you a lot of information. It, it still doesn't always make up for that generation time effect, but but it helps because there's just so many more opportunities for you to, for you to see a, a variant that you can work with. And you've got a really interesting perspective with that. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but you've worked with this over the course of your career with turtle phylogenies and relationships. And so not only have you seen the phylogenies themselves change, but you've seen the types of analyses change. And so we'll, I think we'll definitely touch on the, the genomics aspect, but maybe taking a step back into earlier attempts and some of your earlier attempts at constructing these phylogenies, there's something kind of interesting and there's so much, like you said, sort of early on, it, there's not much in science that is more holistic than the phylogenetic tree in terms of all the pieces of data and ways to interpret it. It's just as much sort of a philosophical construct as it is a computer science question. So it's kind of a fascinating, it's all these different angles you can take. But early on, before you had all this genomic technology and, and the things that are just becoming available now that you're sort of the forefront of, what was the way that you would work on these problems? And what were some of the common issues you had, for instance, using just single genes to yeah. for relationships? Well, I mean, you know, in anything, right? I mean, whether it's genomics or, or you know, putting radio transmitters on organisms or, you know, whatever it is you, you care to work on. If, if there's a, a technological side to it, um, you know, you work with the technology that's available and you also work with the technology that you can afford. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, just, just, you know, by way of, uh, you know, just sort of fairly recent history, back in 2013, we published the first genome of a turtle. It was a painted turtle. And if you looked at all of the different pieces of information and uh, you know stuff that that different labs donated to it, um, it cost about a million dollars to sequence that turtle. Wow. Yeah. Um, we can now it's, it's resequencing, which is a little bit of a cheat, but you can you can now resequence a painted turtle, its entire genome for about $300. And, and that's since in 10 20, years. That's since, yeah, it's in 10 <laughs> years. Right. So, so, um, you know, 10 years ago, you could sequence a turtle, um, 12 years ago, whenever we actually did the work before we published the paper. Um, but, but, you know, could you afford, I mean, again, just to take an example, we're just finishing up a project uh, with someone else uh, who I think you've interviewed, Peter Scott, yeah. when, when he was here in the lab uh, on Western pond turtles. And we collected really good genomic data on 1,600 pond turtle samples from all across the state, all across their, their entire range from Washington to Baja. Uh, well, we can do that because it's gotten cheap. Right, ten years ago, that would have been sixteen hundred 
billion dollars, right? Or $1.6 billion. Yeah. So, <laughs> Right. nobody's going to fund that right you know you can go to the moon for that so 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 um so it's a combination of of the technology that's available at the time and what we can afford so when we first started working on turtles um it, you know turtle phylogenies we published I, I think our first paper back in 97 um which i did with uh you know a lot of that was was also working with a couple of undergrads uh, in the lab, and um, there, the sequencing technology that was available was really single gene sequencing, um, and there are all kinds of issues that, that are just problematic when you're trying to understand the relationships of organisms who's most closely related to you and who's more distantly related. Um, there are huge problems when you just use one character set, right? I mean, just imagine, you know, morphologically, you look at, you know, those of us, you know, on, on this call right now, and if we use uh, hair color, yeah. or if we used height, or if we used anything which has a genetic basis, um, and therefore has some heritability, and therefore has some information about who's related to who, you know, we'd get it wrong. Yeah. Right? You know, um, and uh, almost certainly because single characters just they have their own idiosyncratic histories or it would give sort of a different interpretation. Well, it would yeah. it would tell you about the history of amongst, you know, the us uh, on this call. It, it would tell you about, you know, kind of the history of our hair color genes mm -hmm. or the history of the genes related to height with respect to us and those may or may not have much of anything to do with how we're related to one another in terms of our of our true genealogical history you know going back from parent to offspring to offspring, parent to offspring. and that's what we're trying to understand with um with phylogenetics and so um the you know the idea basically has always been that if you use a lot of different characters you know, some of them are shaped by natural selection. And so they tell you a lot about where organisms live environmentally and less about their their evolutionary history, about their, you know, phylogenetic history. Some tell you about phylogenetic history. Some, you know, have one history, some have another history. And if you kind of have enough of them and you average it all out, the one thing that they all are subject to is is phylogeny. I mean, you know, there is a true, you know, set of relationships. If you have three species, two of them shared a common ancestor more recently with each other than either did the third. That's that's true. Right. And if you get enough genes or morphological characters or whatever, usually that signature comes through. It's it all comes out in the wash, but you need a bunch of them. And so you know, we have gone through different iterations as the technology has changed and as things have become more and less expensive of, of putting together different collections of types of characters that we can use that we think give us an accurate, reasonably accurate estimate of, um, of who's related to who. And then the other thing that has, has really strengthened the whole business is um is 
putting together, you know, really good statistical models that allow us to say not just that, you know, species one and two are more closely related to each other compared to species three, but also allow us to put some certainty on that. So allow us to say, yeah, you know, that's what the data says, but you know, we're really not very sure. Right. As opposed to saying, you know, we're really quite sure. And and that that innovation, those statistical innovations have been um absolutely the kind of bedrock of being able to move forward in the business because it tells you it helps you understand better what you know and you know what you don't know right and that, that's sort of the i i think you're sort of highlighting the idea of independent lineage sorting and and have the different well, genes tell different stories different genes tell different stories yeah. yeah and um you know and uh i mean you know different genes um i mean right different genes do tell different stories and they tell that um both because of things like natural selection natural selection has acted on them in different ways to constrain them or accelerate their their rate of change um and they also do it through just these really interesting random or as people say stochastic processes and and like lineage sorting and lineage sorting um is is one of those and I, mean, I don't think this podcast is the time or place to to go into those in, the specifics in, uh, <laughs> just just how that works but it's a um but you can get um you, you you can get lots of sort of disagreement between between different genes and different parts of the genome in terms of of how individuals are related to each other and I mean, the one thing I'll say on that, a little, a little techie thing, but, but yeah, that, that, that works. Yeah, <laughs> is, um, is just to say, so, so imagine you've got um, three species of turtles yeah, or anything else. And, you know, again, as we say, you know, two of them shared a common ancestor more recently with each other. So then when they did the third, just and that's the game in phylogeny is trying to figure out which two are more closely related to each other compared to the third, or which two share a common ancestor more recently with each other compared to the third. And if the if the so so if you think back in time, there was a single ancestral population, and it's split into two. Okay, and that leads to one species and another. Those now become two species. And then one of those, but not the other, split again and, and formed two new species. So that would that would give us the phylogeny looking backwards in time now of those of those three species. And if that time between the first speciation event and the second speciation event is long. So if the first split happened 10 million years ago and the second split happened five million years later, then if you think about it, that, that means there's, there's five million years when, when those two species that derived from the second event, um, when their common ancestor diverged from the other one. And those, those changes that occurred are gonna be shared between those two species. So if that, if that internal branch, as it's called, is relatively long in time, it's a much easier phylogenetic problem. Mm -hmm. But just imagine if the first speciation event happened 10 million years ago, 
And the next one happened 9.9 million years ago. There's just a little itty bitty time in yeah, there. there and there's just not much time for things to evolve on that little branch. And, and that evolution on that little branch, that's the information that's going to tell us that those other two are more closely related to each other than that other third. So a huge amount depends on exactly what happened, right? And, you know, sometimes the world changes, right? You know, we, we get a glacial or interglacial or, you know, a meteorite crashes down and a lot of stuff goes extinct or whatever happens. And oftentimes after those events, there's a lot of rapid bursts of evolution. Um, and that's fascinating to understand but it makes it really tough to figure out what happened in there because everything was going really really quickly right speciation was happening boom 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 it, those are really hard to, to separate out whereas you know if the world is nice and stable for a period of time um well then you know speciation happens for one reason or another but those internal branches oftentimes tend to be longer and those tend to be much easier bits of history to sort out it, that sort of highlights something kind of interesting. Uh, I think that there was uh, the hopeful monster hypothesis. And that, that's one that was based on development, mm -hmm. developmental studies more. But based on what you're saying, that would be tough to pick up in a phylogenetic framework because that sort of hinges on the idea that, that there were rapid bursts of change. Well, I mean, ugh. hopeful monsters, um, you know, you may or may not know this, but but the other group of organisms of, of amphibians that I study a lot okay. are salamanders, and and sort of the quintessential hopeful monster in many ways is this thing called an axolotl. It's a, yes. a species in Bismarck Mexicanum that occurs in Mexico. I did my PhD work on them. I've, I've continued to this day studying their relatives. Um, California tiger salamanders, a federally endangered species that I work on a lot, are very closely related to axolotls. And so what's an axolotl, right? So an axolotl is a larval salamander, you know, a lot of salamanders, not all, but, but a lot of salamanders have a larval phase that lives in the water, they go through a metamorphosis, they turn into terrestrial phase, and then that terrestrial phase is what we think of as the adult salamander. Same with frogs. You know, a tadpole or a polywog turns into an adult frog through metamorphosis. Well, what an axolotl is, is a larval salamander that never metamorphoses. It turns into a sexually mature, large larva. It's got gills, it's got a tail fin, its skin never changes, it doesn't get a color pattern. If its pond or lake dries up, it dies. That and that is, you know, we've done work on this. Other people have. There's a, there's some some genes associated with the metamorphosis hormonal cascade for thyroid hormone and its, and its receptors um, that gets interrupted and leads to that new morphology. So that, you know, is a hopeful monster in the sense that you get this thing that in one swoop with one mutation, you get a lineage that doesn't look anything like its ancestor. You know, they're just completely different, right? One is aquatic, one is terrestrial, one has gills, 
one doesn't. One takes four years to reach sexual maturity, one takes six months. Everything about them is different. Um, and the the so the the hopeful monster, and maybe this is what you were saying, the hopeful monster transition that is true happens very quickly yeah. um, in, in that case because it's a single developmental gene. So I guess I guess that that and 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 working out those animals has been has been um, extraordinarily difficult. Uh, from a phylogenetic point of view, we've, I think, finally got that worked out, but it's been very hard, very slow process. So, so you're right. The, the hopeful monsters are derived from their less monstrous relatives <laughs> very yeah. quickly. And so that is, that is a, uh, a, a difficult phylogenetic problem um, to sort out. I mean, not all instances of developmental change um happen quickly like that you know sometimes developmental evolution is slow and gradual just like other forms of evolution but 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 you're right now are there any hopeful monsters in turtles i don't know yeah i don't know yeah i that i don't know but right. but fair enough anyhow yeah well i i think that's it, it we definitely want to talk about sort of the the turtle phylogeny and how the different the nodes in the turtle mm -hmm. phylogeny have changed. Before I know, there's some, and we sort of touched on this. It, it's there was a paper that you wrote on this, uh, like uh, troubleshooting uh, phylogenies, and that really points out how diverse the approach is. And this was a while back, and and stuff has certainly changed. But when you're dealing with more historical now we've got genomes and there's sort of a different type of analysis for that but with more historical phylogenies and tree construction uh -huh. again the beauty of that is how complex it is and where all the different variables and data come together and produce a tree at the same rate with more sort of model complexity you get more things that could go wrong uh -huh. and there's some things that are pretty consistently can go wrong in analyses and you've touched on the idea of the, the sort of marriage of statistics with mm -hmm. the phylogenetics. Yeah. Maybe you could explain sort of how the that that kind of the bootstrapping analysis, how that works. What is that telling us about the the accuracy of, of the sure. tree? Sure. Well, if you want to understand bootstrapping, which is which is one form um, uh, of assessing this sort of you know, reliability of, of a of a tree or a node on a tree. Um, so bootstrapping is a is a general um, it's a, it's a general strategy for you know, putting probability values on on statistics. And the way it works is like this. So, so first of all, what's the logic behind it? So um, let's say you're using genetic data, or let's say you're using morphological data, either one. Um, there's a very large array of possible genes that have each have sort of different histories or possible morphological characters that you that that are potentially available for an organism, right? Um, you picked some of them. Maybe because they were easy to get your hands on, maybe because that's what the technology allowed you to do at that time. But you know, up until recently, at least with, with genomics, um, 
you you seldom had the whole thing. You seldom had all the information. And even if you did, um, you didn't have every individual. So you have a collection of individuals that you collected a collection of data on. And what you'd what you'd like is to be able to believe that that collection of data and um, individuals that you have are really representative of the possible data and the stories that those individual pieces of data, those individual characters can tell and in the possible individuals. And, you know, you might have some, some you know, collection of data um, that is, is biased in certain ways. You might not be sure about that. Um, and so, and so the way, the way that bootstrapping works is, so consider the following. So, so let's say you have a hundred nucleotides worth of data in other positions, and another variable, and we've got that across a bunch of individuals. Um, well, if that hundred that you have is a reasonable, is a, is a random set from the genome, from those 2.6 billion that you could have found, okay, then that's good. So you take that random set of 100 characters and you analyze it once and you get a tree, okay? But what you'd like to know, the, the experiment you'd like to do is to say, let me go back into the genomes and get another 100. And let me build the tree again. And let me see if species A and B or individual A and B are each other's closest relatives in both of those. And what I'd like to do is do that again and do that again and do that again. Do that a lot of times. Do that 10,000 times. And if every time species A and B are each other's closest relatives and species C falls outside of that, then I'm going to feel pretty darn confident that the right phylogeny is that A and B are each other's closest relatives. Okay. If I only do it once, or maybe there's just something weird and idiosyncratic about that particular set of 100 base pairs. Well, normally you can't do that. You can't go back into the genome, and especially in earlier history, you couldn't, you know, you had your 100 base pairs, and that's what you were stuck with. Okay. So what could you do instead? Well, rather than going back into the genome and pulling out a hundred new independent characters at random and redoing the exercise, you can say, well, if my first hundred is a random set from the genome, then what I can do is take those hundred characters, go into that set of a hundred and pull one out at random. Okay, now take the same hundred, go back in and do it again, and do it again, and do that a hundred times, okay? And what you're doing is, and, and why isn't that second set of a hundred identical to the first set of a hundred? Well, it's because you're, you're sampling that first set of a hundred, as they say, with replacement, okay? So, um, so what it means is, is that you might get nucleotide number 27 
on the first draw. Just do not, I don't know, stick that in there in my data set. And then you might go back in and get it again, right? You might happen to hit it just by flipping a coin. You know, you might happen to hit that um, two or three or four times. And there might be several other characters that you miss just due to luck. Okay, and that will happen. There's a, and there's there's big statistics behind that. And it turns out that if your first set of data was a good random draw from the true distribution you care about, in this case the genome, then each one of those hundred samples where you sampled with your placement will be an equally good representative draw as if you had resequenced, you had gone back into the original genome. And so it's a way you can leverage a small data set. And then what you can do is for each one of those, um, those, those bootstrap samples, you can say, let me rebuild the genome, okay? With, you know, some characters sampled more than once, some not sampled at all, they're all different. And it gives me the opportunity to now do that 10,000 times and say, how often are species one and two related to each other? And you know, what you, what you can sort of see, I mean, the logic of it is if you have very strong support for A and B being closely related with respect to C, then what does that mean? That means a lot of those hundred characters are gonna be shared by A and B and different C. And so when you go back in and resample, you're always gonna hit those. Right. over and over and over again. And if instead, you know, there's 10 characters that say A and B are each other's closest relatives and nine that say A and C are, well then in those bootstraps, you're gonna, you're gonna get lots of both of those. And so those trees are gonna be very discordant and you're not gonna get very strong support for any one phylogeny. Right. So yeah, that's how it works. That, I think that that's a good thing to cover. Uh, before going into it, just because it's so critical, as you yeah. said, to yeah. understanding yeah. the accuracy and, and sort of it is. interpreting results. Yeah. So it, with, sort of with that, uh, there, there's issues in, in other respects in terms of tree topology and that and that sort of thing. But I, I'm kind of curious, because as we've mentioned earlier, you've, you've studied turtle phylogenetics for at, at least 30 years, I would assume. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, it, you've seen how these things have changed, but you've also seen the actual phylogeny, the the, the most likely scenario. Um, you've seen that change over time. Yeah. And in terms of the nodes of the turtle tree, uh, I'm sort of curious, uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen that maybe have surprised you and and why, yeah. What what what's the methodologies that underlie the the new understanding. Yeah. So, so remember too with phylogeny um, or genealogy, you know, you can you that you you can study phylogeny at sort of any level in the hierarchy of the tree of life that you wish. So, you know, you can you can study within turtles. You can take say the you know the the 13 generally recognized families of turtles and you can ask how are they related to each other but not care about species within the families you know i just want to know who are sea turtles related to right there's two families of sea turtles are they each other's closest relatives um are that how are they related to other turtles you can also ask the question you know at the species level 
So you can say the Western palm turtle, which we've split into two species, who is it most closely related to, you know, within that subfamily of the family that's in there's a few candidate species, how are they related? Um, you can do it at the population level. You can say are, you know, Western palm turtles from, you know, Orange County and LA County more closely related to each other than either of the most San Diego County turtles. You can do it at any level or in time frame that you wish. Um, the, when I started working on turtles with um, Peter Malin, who, who uh, I think you've also interviewed, um, Peter and I were you know, old friends from, yeah. from you know, work we did when I was an undergrad and he was a graduate student years and years and years ago. Um, but um, the, the thing that we tackled in that first bit um, was how are the families of turtles related to each other? And we did that using a couple of genes and some morphological characters. And then we threw in some fossils to try to understand the time course of that because Peter was basically a paleontologist. And, uh, and we, we came up with some answers and also some confusions. Um, the most at that level of the families of turtles. It's sort of global phylogeny. Global yeah. phylogeny. So all of the species and all the families of turtles across the world. The, um, the, the probably two most perplexing ones, the ones that were just the toughest to figure out were snapping turtles which is really interesting, snappers, you know, snapping turtles, um, there's alligator snapping turtles and common snapping turtles. Um, and they are, you know, super widespread, and common snappers are in, across most of uh, Eastern North America. Um, they can be very abundant, they're very heavily exploited in the, in the food markets uh, and trade, uh, often to a very unsustainable level. Uh, and if you know what a snapping turtle looks like, they're enormous. They're they're just bristling with all kinds of weird characters. They have these super long spiny tails. Yeah. They have a little tiny um, plastron, a little tiny bottom shell um, that's very, very reduced and hardly even connects to the carapace. Um, they're very aggressive. They have huge hypertrophied heads. They're just weird turtles, right? And so no one has ever doubted that snapping turtles are their own group. And alligator snappers and common snappers are very similar. There's a couple of other species in the common snapper genus uh, Calydra that occur in Central and South, or in Mexico and Central America and South America. Um, no one's ever doubted that that's a group because they're so weird. But because they're so weird, because they have so many unique features, it, it means they don't share those features with a lot of other turtles. And so it makes it very hard to figure out who they're related to. So for that, you need shared similarities. So, and, and that's a, you know, that's a generalization, right? I mean, you know, whales, right? I mean, no one doubts that whales are related, right? But they're so weird, figuring out who whales are related to has been a really hard problem, right? Um, and, and that's just sort of generally true in phylogenetics that, Easier it is to recognize a group because they're so different. The harder it is to figure out who they're related to 
because they're so different. They're different from everything else, so that makes it hard. So anyhow, um, you know, it turns out whales are closely related to hippos. Right? That's the that's one of the coolest phylogenetic results I think to emerge in the last twenty years. Well, who the hell are snapping turtles related to? Right? It's really been a tough problem, and um, and. I feel very, very confident that with using, you know, very large genomic data sets, we finally have figured that out. And, and the answer is that snapping turtles are related to mud and musk turtles in the family Clinosternity. And, you know, when you look at them, some musk turtles in particular have, you know, very reduced, you know, plastra. Um, the, the weird thing about it is that most mud and musk turtles are really little. You know, they're, I mean, most of them are, you know, I don't know, you know, five, six, seven inches long. They're small turtles. Not not all, but but most of them are. And snappers are huge, right? right. So based on that character, you'd be kind of very surprised to think of them as each other's closest relatives. But, you know, the data are pretty unambiguous. And um, I mean, I don't think pretty. I think the data now at this point completely unambiguous. And um, and so, I mean, that's that's one example. Um, the the, uh, the of of something that has just been a persistent, persistent problem for years. And I mean, one really interesting thing is that there was a a, a guy who uh, was on the faculty at Harvard University. Uh, he was the herpetologist in Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zo uh, Zoology, the MCC. Uh, his name is Ernest Williams. And if, if you know herpetology, you know Ernest Williams as the person who sort of invented anolis lizards, the you know, American chameleons they're sometimes called, fascinating radiation of lizards that have speciated all through the Caribbean islands and all through mainland um, Central and South America. And, and Williams really generated anoles as a model system in studying evolution and ecology. Well, Williams did his PhD work on the evolution of the cervical vertebrae, the neck vertebrae of turtles. That's what he did his PhD on. Now that's where I think most of us and our listeners are familiar. Oh, we're with familiar with turtles. Williams. Okay, well, most people yeah. don't know that yeah. about Williams. And if you read the monograph, which was his PhD, Ernest Williams says, you know, snappers are a big problem. And he said, and based on their neck vertebrae, they're related to mud musk turtles. So Williams got it right. Yeah, right. And that's not that's not always the case. <laughs> that's I mean, not always the case, but Williams did. It, it, it's interesting that that line of morphological data was sort of corroborated what you found yeah, with yeah. multiple yeah. different lines yep. of evidence. But... I, the the platysternidae, that's yep. another one that's yep. sort of an issue. Maybe you can speak to that, but you would think that just based on gross morphology, they were they're similar to snappers, yep. but that's and platysternins are big headed turtles, that's their common name. Um another you know, either one or a couple of species, depending on, on your taxonomic preferences. Um Asian turtles, small long tail, big head, but a very weird big head with all the secondary ossification in it. Um, 
they they climb the, the reports. I've never seen a pythonin in the wild, but you know the reports are that they climb low trees and bushes, and they they live in along streams systems for the most part, um, all through Southeast Asia and, and parts of South China, um, and again, as you say, at a very superficial, you know, a very morphological level. They've got that big head, they've got that long tail, they've got some of the features that define um, climbing and snapping turtles, and morphologically, they were put together yeah. as, um, as, as sister taxa and um, as sister families. And it turns out that that platysternity, platysternum, um, is, is the sister group um, to amide turtles, to, to freshwater pond turtles, and colidrids, um, snapping turtles, are the sister group, the closest relative to mud and musk turtles, and those two are in very different parts of the turtle phylogeny. So the what the molecular data has shown is that the kind of gross similarities between big-headed turtles and snapping turtles is convergent. It's not it, it's not indicating that they're very closely related. It's indicating instead some common features of their biology, which to tell you the honest truth, I don't think we understand. Yeah. I don't I don't think we understand why they are so you know morphologically similar. Right. It, it is but it's independently derived. It's not, it does not reflect the fact that they have a very recent common ancestor. Yeah, that's something to, to speculate on. And for people listening, something that uh, you could definitely spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. There's one more sort of node that's been challenging. Uh, and then maybe we can talk a bit more about the genomes of turtles. Sure. But before uh, we sort of move on to that, uh, the, the trinechoids, the mm -hmm. soft shells and allies, right. yep. that's one that even today is sort of ambiguous. Well, I, so, so again, Presumably, your people know this. You know the the major split of turtles, right, is between the side neck turtles and the hidden neck turtles, the cryptodires and the pleurodires. And you know more or less, hidden neck turtles, which you know pull their head in with a vertical S curve, um, and um, are cryptodires are more or less northern hemisphere turtles and, and pleurodires, which pull their heads into the side, like the monomata turtle or the Australian snake turtle, are more or less southern hemisphere turtles. And that kind of goes back to the breakup of, of uh, Gondwana and, and into, into the different um, uh, different major continental groups. Um, so Cryptodires and pleurodires, everyone has always agreed, are, you know, are very separate ancient lineages that diverged a long time ago. And that's the molecular data has all held that up. Softshell turtles are cryptodires. So they, they, I mean, based on how they pull their neck in, they pull their neck in, in you know, in, with the, the vertical hinges. Um, but they're very weird turtles, right? I mean, they have you know tightness scutes on their shells. They're 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 you know they're a very strange, bizarre group of turtles. Um, and what goes along with them, pretty clearly, is pignose turtles or fly river turtles in the family uh, Crinoclidae, um, which are restricted to New Guinea and, and northern Australia. 
Um, and that goes with, with the, the soft shells. And so the, the kind of question has always, it, it, it's, it's always been pretty clear that soft shells really go in with the, the hidden materials with the cryptodires. Um, but exactly where and how, and again, it's just because they're so weird. They're just so divergent that yeah. a lot of the characters that we use to, to link other turtles together, they've just lost them or modified them so badly you can't even see them anymore. And um, what has really kind of emerged is that there really are three major lineages of turtles. There's the side neck turtles, there's the non-soft shell cryptodires, and there's the soft shells. And, you know, what, again, what the molecular data has informed us of, um, I think, very unambiguously, is that, yes, soft shells are cryptodires, but the first split in the evolution of the cryptodira was between soft shells and everybody else. Yeah. And so, and that everybody else includes marine turtles, you know, includes leatherback turtles, it includes you know, snapping turtles, it includes big-headed turtles, it includes tortoises. And so the split between soft shells and all of the others, um, you know, sometimes called the Dura cryptodira, um, the hard-shelled cryptodires, um, was a very early split that happened not too long after the split between pluridires and cryptodires. So it's a relatively short internal node. So they're a very ancient one. They're, they're very, very ancient. ancient clade, they're a very ancient clade. And the first split in those is between the pignose turtle, mm -hmm. um, which is a single species that is just hanging on as a single species, and the other, whatever we're up to now, 27 or 28 species of softshell turtles, which are distributed across most of the northern hemisphere. Um, and, and interestingly enough, if you, if you, look at a combination of evolutionary uniqueness and sort of conservation status based on just population status. Um, the pig-nosed turtle is, is probably the most endangered long branch of turtle evolution in the world. So if we, and they're, you know, they're very heavily exploited and, the way to put it is that if we lose pignose turtles, we lose as one species, we lose more of the entire history of all turtles on earth than any other species of turtle. That's an interesting 150 million years. Yeah, it's a long, long piece of evolutionary history and there's no other survivors from that lineage. So we're down to just the pignose turtle. So anyhow, it's a it's an important one. But the placement of soft shells has always been tricky. It's 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 very solid now. Yeah, we we understand it um, very clearly. But you know, there are old hypotheses that said that soft shells were closer to lake than mud musk turtles, and it turns out just not true. Um, and uh, it's interesting to go back to some of the morphological characters that people used to link those, and say, well, you know, what's up with those characters? Why? Why are there some sort of subtle similarities? Um, but but that's a you know that's a different thing in terms of just understanding how those speciation events led to the phylogeny that we have now. It's it's a very ancient split 
with only quarter of hours. Right. It, yeah, it's it's and there's still go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. There's still um, disagreements within the soft shell. So like for for example, um as far as I know, it's still not certain if Apollonia Mutica is sister to Ferox or Spinifera. I wonder if you have reservations for him. I, I think the Ferox, you know, the 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 Ferox Spinifera um, connection to the exclusion of Mutica is is, is now really quite well established. Um, that's right. it has been a it and you know there's I don't know how well you know those turtles, but um, but you know things like the nasal septum, which is which is the character that I always use to to tell a, a Spinifera from Mutica and Ferox shares the the nasal septum um, with with uh, Spinifera. Um, there, there, there. I'm sure there's other characters. That's the one I happen to use. But the molecular data is very strong on that. Um, so I, I think that that's really become pretty well resolved at this point. Okay. Yeah, there's, I mean, soft shells have always been a, been a tricky group um, to understand both, both species boundaries and phylogenetic relationships. Um, uh, a guy who got his PhD in my lab years ago named Tag Gangstrom uh, did his PhD work on, on the phylogeny of soft shells and um, I think made pretty good progress, as you probably know, Peter Malin. Uh, you know, did his PhD on on the phylogeny and soft shells, and he was the one who first broke them up from being a single genus, from all being in the genus Trionics to whatever we have now, eight genera or something like that. Um, so Peter, I think, made, made some big strides based purely on morphology. I think Tag made some additional big strides uh, bringing molecular data um, into the story. Um, but there are still some still some tricky ones. And I, I think the big emerging question now with soft shells is, is species limitation. So things like, you know, Pelodiscus, if you know them, the Chinese soft shell, you know, mm -hmm. always considered to be a single species. Now, Sinensis has been broken up into, I can't remember how many, but, but eight or 10 species. Um, and, and, you know, testing and validating those species, understanding their geographic ranges, understanding how they're related to each other within the genus Peldiscus. Um, I think those are those are some of the big challenges um, right now. Same with some of the sub-Saharan African soft shells. And is is the uh, is the Raphidus and Apollon relationship still still upholded? Yeah, um, previous? I think it seems really um, interesting to me. It is it is really interesting. So yes. and you know Raphidus itself. You know, which which has a you know very disjunct distribution. You know, one one species mm -hmm. that's nearly extinct in in South China and Southeast Asia, and the other you know in the Mediterranean um, is. Uh, I mean, the fact that those two are sister groups, I I was sure they wouldn't be. I mean, I, I just <laughs> didn't make any sense to me. Why should they be? But really, it looks like they are. You know, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then you know the relationship of Raphidus um, to Apollonia. That's it's actually you know I'd have to look at some of my own work to tell you, um, but I but I but you know my my memory is that's held up pretty well. Okay, um, which again was originally 
proposed based on morphological characters and, and I, I think has held up. Yeah, but and again, biogeographically, what's going on with that? You know, I mean, the, those, those that become the very interesting downstream things that we can study with those phylogenetic results, mm -hmm. right? To understand how that relates to continental drift or you know, one of the things about soft shell turtles, again, a little odd in my mind, given that they don't have a hard shell, you would think they might not be very good at dealing with salt water. But like Trionyx trianglus, the, the uh, you know, soft shell of the, the, uh, the Nile soft shell, uh, you know, they got those apparently 100 meters down in the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, eating clams I mean, right out in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and um, you know, soft shells are actually pretty good at making it in, in, in salty water. Some of the giant basin soft shells are really good at, at being in, in briny salty water. So maybe, maybe that's a part of the, the funny disjunct distribution of some of the soft shells as well. Right, right. Well, it's, it's good to know that all this, um, these additional markers that are being used have helped to resolve the uh, relationships in, in soft shells because that's not always the case. You know, more data is always better than less data, but sometimes it doesn't help to generate more resolution in the phylogeny. And yeah. one of the solutions that you write is uh, bacterial artificial chromosomes. I'm interested in that because I've used um, like triple digest libraries to sequence you know, my toads, but I've never heard of your um, BAC approach. If you could talk about that, that'd be interesting. Yeah, well, the, the back libraries, um are um, at least in, in my understanding, um, they're, 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 I think they're falling out of favor. So this is almost a little bit more historical mm. than it is current. So the, the, um, the, the, the sort of logic, okay, so when you think about if you want to assemble a genome, okay, so you want to get the whole genome, you want to get all the chromosomes, and you want to assemble them all in a linear array as they exist in the cells of the body of the organism. Okay. So what do you do? Usually sequences are short. So you know, you take it, you you can, it's easy to, as you know, extract the DNA from an organism. You shear it, you chop it up into pieces, okay, and that's random. So all the pieces are there. And you know the analogy that we all use because it's a good one is jigsaw puzzles. So all the pieces are there, and they've got to sort of put them all back together. You got to sequence them and then put them back together again to get those those chromosome length um, arrays. And the sequencing is usually short, right? So most most sequencing is in 150 to 500 base pair pieces that you've got to assemble into chromosomes that might be a hundred million base pairs or you know 200 million or 300 million base pairs long. And so the way the way you you do that is you partly you just take all of those fragments that you've sequenced, right? And you look for overlap. You look for you know a 20 base pair unique sequence at one end of one fragment that is also found in a different fragment. And you know now those two are the same. And so you can stick those together. And now you got, you know, 
a 600 base pair piece. And then you find another one and stick that on. And now you've got a 900 base pair piece, you know, and you, and you sort of build those out. And those are, those are called contigs because they're contiguous pieces of DNA. And you bioinformatically build those up and those get you, depending on the sequencing that you did to a certain point. And now you want to glue those together, right? Into what are called scaffolds. And those are, those are saying, okay, I've got a contig and another contig. And what I'd like to know, even if I don't have the stuff in between, I'd like to know where they sit relative to each other and how far apart they are. And so the way you do that is you somehow generate from a long piece of DNA, a piece of DNA that's five or 10 or 20,000 base pairs long, you generate some sequence from those. And then you say, okay, well, I've got this 5,000 base pair piece. So what a back is, a back library is, is that you take, you take the DNA from your organism and you break it up into big pieces, like five to 10 KB, five to 10,000 base pair pieces. And you insert those into bacteria and you can use then that construct, the bacteria, to, to grow them up and to replicate them, okay? And what you can do, just the nature of that construct, is you can sequence in a few hundred base pairs from the end of each one of those long pieces. So you sequence in 500 base pairs or 400 base pairs in to the ends, okay? Mm -hmm. Now what do you have? Now you've got a sequence, a 400 base pair sequence, and another 400 base pair sequence, and you know they're connected. You know they're in the same piece of DNA, so you know, and you know how long that piece of DNA is. So you know that those, those two bits are on the same scaffold. Now you can take each one of those base, those three or 400 base pair bits when you in sequence that back. And you can look across all of your contigs and say, do I see the left-hand one anywhere? And if you do, I say, okay, the contig that I've got, it goes there. And then look on the other end and do the same thing. And so that allows you to build out these bigger, con these bigger scaffolds, right? These long, you don't know what's in the middle, but at least you know that contig one and contig two are on the same stretch of DNA and that there's about 4,000 base pairs between them of something unknown. If you want, you can sequence your way in, but, but that's very time consuming. But, but that's what backs were used for, is to create scaffolds that allowed you to take your contigs and glue them together into longer pieces, okay, that start to feel more like chromosomes. And that's just part of doing an assembly of a genome. Well, now we can use different technologies for that. So now you can do single molecule sequencing that's 10, 15, 20,000 base pairs long. So you, you kind of don't need the back anymore because mm -hmm. you can just take the raw native DNA without putting it into a bacteria and, and growing it and plating it out and, and stuff um, and doing all that stuff that we had to do 20 years ago. Now, the sequencing technology is such that if you have a really, really high quality tissue sample or blood sample, 
that went, you know, from the turtle directly into liquid nitrogen and, you know, it's really intact and is, is really high molecular weight DNA with really long fragments in it. You can just sequence those and you can do that, you know, back by hi-fi sequencing, for example, those go up to about 15,000 base pairs and, and, uh, you know, the, the new, brand new Promethean sequencing, if you're familiar with it, you know, you can go up to, I, I think you can go up to about 50 KB, about 50,000 base pairs on a single, um, on a single molecule. And, and in fact, we're just a couple of colleagues, um, uh, um, a guy who you might be interested in talking to named, uh, named, named uh, Caleb Krumer, um, who's a grad student at Michigan State University, um, we're collaborating on using that new Promethean sequencing, um, that super ultra long um, sequencing on a spotted turtle to create what we hope will be the first true chromosome level assembly of a turtle. Um, and we're, we're doing spotted turtles on this mutata. Um, simply because they're so heavily exploited in the U.S. They're the, you know, the, my understanding is they're the number one confiscated turtle at LAX and at, at uh, JFK um, for going out illegally for the turtle trade. And so it's, it's part of a, of a project to, um, to sequence spotted turtles from all across their range in the U.S. and, and anyhow, use this reference as, as, as part of that project. We can talk about it if you want. But anyhow, so going back to all of this, those back libraries were a technology that, as it turns out, was kind of an intermediate technology that allowed us to scaffold together those you know, those, those reasonable long reads that we can put together. We used it in, in the painted turtle genome, uh, for example. Right. And that's now been uh, sort of supplanted by these longer single molecule sequencing um, techniques that, that allow you to do it in a much simpler and much more effective way. Right, right. I'm, I'm, I always feel glad that I, I live at a time where these um, genomic genomic methods are <laughs> readily available because Singer sequencing is such a pain. Even if you have like just five loci, you have to calculate the annealing temperature and half the times it doesn't even work. Yeah, yeah. No, but trust me. <laughs> I mean, go back and go back and look at that 1997 paper that we did, you know, across turtles, you know, because one of the things about Sanger sequencing and annealing temperatures and trying to get the primers yeah. to sit down is that, um, you know, that varies depending on the sequence, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. turtles at, you know, 210, 220 million years of divergence, even at a slow rate, there's a lot of evolution. And so, you know, you had to make taxon specific primers and try and get them to sit down in different places. And um, it was a, it was a big lift to, to try and get that to work, even just, you know, for Cytochrome B and 12S, um, you know, just a couple of easy genes um, and uh, across right. that kind of uh, divergence. And now, you know, all that is, you know, is ancient history. Um, and uh, I mean, I agree with you, you know, I mean, we're, we're, you know, now we're routinely, you know, 
resequencing entire genomes of hundreds of individuals, you know, and, and we can, you know, thousands in some, in some cases, and we can do that now, you know, and five years ago, we couldn't. And, um, and, you know, right now we can do it. You know, you, you obviously know a lot about genomics. Um, you know, we can afford to do it at roughly 10 X coverage, um, you know, which, which means, you're kind of right in the zone when you can accurately call heterozygotes so we can understand heterozygosities and we can, you know, which is a very important concept for studying inbreeding depression, which is a major problem in a lot of turtles, or I think it is. Um, but um, trust me, you know, by the time you've got your PhD, you're going to look back at us doing things at 8X and 10X coverage and you're going to say, pathetic. You know, because now we can do it in 100x coverage and, you know, we can call every SNP and every variant and every heterozygote with absolute certainty. And that that will be absolutely doable in five years. Right, right. It's, it's not just, you know, the, you know, how easy it is to um, sequence a genome. It's also just simply the more accessibility to the nuclear genes, because we've seen so many yeah. species descriptions that have been made out of mitochondrial DNA and those... Yep. Yeah, those, those aren't really good at all because of the, no. uh, the maternal inheritance of mitochondria. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes they are. I mean, the, yeah, sometimes the, they are. Yeah. How do you know? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. How do you know? I mean, I've, I have always thought, you know, you guys, you guys should do this. Um, you know, we're probably at a point now where we could do this um, is, is that for taxa where we have mitochondrial DNA, good mitochondrial DNA sampling, and, you know, taxonomic decisions were made based on that. And we now have good nuclear DNA sampling and ask what fraction of the time was the mtDNA wrong and what, you know, what, I mean, it's, it's not wrong. It's just telling us about its own history as opposed to the history right. of turtles, right? You know, yeah, yeah. It just it gets you know misinterpreted sometimes because right. like in lizards, like in Scalopteris, there's lots of mitochondrial ingression, and then we don't yeah, recover and, the actual population lineage. Yep. And in it's just something know, I have in to turtles, use cautiously. Yeah. yeah, in turtles there is too. Um, and um, yeah. but wouldn't it be interesting to to now ask what fraction of the time was it? Yeah. You know, and or mm. or what fraction of the time did we? legitimately and reasonably misinterpreted right you know and though it's it, again it's not that it was wrong but we interpreted it as telling us the history of the organisms overall whereas in fact it taught it it only told us about the idiosyncratic history of that you know the mitochondria you know yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and um i don't know what the answer is you know i sure. i have no idea if that sort of error rate if you will is five percent or eighty percent, and I, I don't think we know. It, and I think the data are starting to be there. You know, they're sitting on GenBank. Yeah, yeah. Do Do you have any um specific examples of mitonuclear discordance that comes to mind in turtles? Well, um, the uh, so. You know, one example um, on the books right now, and we're really trying to, to it, it may not be as big an example as we thought it was, um, is with Western pond turtles. Mm -hmm. So Western pond turtles, which are currently 
recognized as two species. Um, the genus has been up for grabs for a long time, but but uh, we've really settled in on actinemies as the as the appropriate genus. Um, and there's actinemies marmorata and actinemies pallida, pallida being the southern species, marmorata being the northern species. And the 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 question area has always been the central coast of California, roughly from Santa Barbara to, to San Francisco, and, and sort of which one is in there. And based on uh, currently published data, which is which has all pretty much come out of our lab, um, mitochondrially, the, the central coast is the northern species, Marmorata, and mm -hmm. um, nuclearly, the central coast is the southern species, Pallida, which goes up to right. at least Monterey and maybe up to up to San Francisco. And so um, there's clearly been some, you know, fairly serious mitochondrial nuclear discordance there um, in that large chunk of the area uh, of mm -hmm. the range. Um, and I mean, new data that Peter Scott and I um, and, and a couple other people in my lab have um have have pushed out um, looking in much greater detail at the central coast says well maybe maybe there actually is a little more hybridization in the central coast than we had thought and so then that discordance isn't perhaps quite as discordant as we had thought um, so it's it's still an evolving story but but at least there's there's clearly been a fair bit of, of discordance in that in that region maybe not quite as much as as uh, as we had thought, um, but uh, with with the big rad soup data set, we're we're I think we're finally coming to to a resolution on that. But that's one example. Um, uh, can I think of any? Oh, oh yeah, a, a great example of uh, mitonuclear discordance is um, at a higher level. So the subfamily Amidini, so the Amidids, right the sort of um, basically the new world, uh, you know, North American plus a little bit of Europe um, pond turtles are split into two subfamilies. They're the diarchelines, that's painted turtles and layered sliders and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, genus Pseudomus and Trachemys and uh, anyhow. And then the Amidines and the Amidines are the uh, western pond turtle, spotted turtle, wood turtle, mud turtle, um, and the uh, and the European pond turtle, Ennis orbicularis and and uh, Trinacris, and the and the European one has always been sort of an enigma, right? It's it's you know what's it doing over there? It's it's the only amided and the only amidine um, in Europe, and so if you think about it, that subfamily of Amidini has one species that's restricted to the west coast of North America. It's got a handful of species, also Blandon's turtle, which I forgot to mention, that are in the Great Lakes to the east coast. So there's, so there's one species in the west coast, one species essentially in the east, and one species in Europe, or several species in the east, excuse me, but, but three different groups. And the, the, the question is sort of how are those related to each other? And the, and the key players, it's, this is clear, are the Western pond turtles, 
Blanding's turtle and the European palm turtle. So those, you know, more or less three lineages, at least, you know, five species mm -hmm. or something, um, form a clade. And the question is, which two of them are more closely related to each other than the third? So is Europe more closely related to the Eastern US than it is to the Western US? Or are the two US ones more closely related to each other from the two coasts with Europe right. splitting off first? So I don't know, I mean, do you know this story? No, I'm, I'm Do you not guys know the story? I, I've reviewed some of this, but okay. uh, it, it, I mean, it seems like the morphology, you would think 100% that it's actinemmies and emmies, uh -huh. but that it doesn't seem like that was the case. Yeah. So, it, so the, you know, um, and, 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 and so um, the mitochondrial DNA said that, um, said that, let me make sure I get this straight, actinemmies and emidoidea, so the two U.S. ones, are sister taxa with emmys mm -hmm. orbicularis sister to that, okay? The nuclear data says emidoidea and emmys, so the eastern U.S. and Europe are sister with actinemmies sister to that, and that seems to be the correct answer, but there's a big mitochondrial discordance because the mitochondria say say the opposite. And right. one of the things that, again, my sense, I've never seen a good review of this, but my sense is, is, that, is that frequently mitochondrial DNA, and, and I think this is just because it's this super gene, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a single non-recombining unit loaded with important genes um, that are involved in, in metabolism and, and energy uh, uh, production and stuff. They're, you know, it's just loaded with these really important genes from a selection point of view that mitochondrial DNA often seems to link together species that live in the same area. And again, if it is important and responsible for, um, for uh, you know, sort of survival in certain environmental conditions, then, and if there's any hybridization at all, then that mitochondria can sneak through that hybrid zone and, you know, be shared across those species that are in the same environmental conditions. And so I think mitochondrial DNA often seems to indicate monophyly of things that live near each other. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, it, and it oftentimes, uh, and, and, and I think that's where some of the mitochondrial nuclear discordance that, that is out there um, is derived from. But I've never seen a meta-analysis of this. I mean, no one's no one's done this to to my knowledge. Um, I, again, I think it would be a really interesting one. But I but I but I do think it's interesting that you know the the uh, mitochondrial DNA said the two species on the same or the two lineages on the same continent were were closely related, and the uh, the nuclear data, which goes more with the morphology, says that Emidoidea and Emmys are more closely related, um, and they used to be in the same genus. 
Yeah. It's a pretty interesting uh, idea. I, I, I like that idea of going back. It's evolutionary biology is a very forward looking field, but right. taking a step back and, and looking at turtle phylogenies at all different levels and more so at the familial level wow. and seeing were certain data sets correct most of the time, mm -hmm. what percentage of the time, that would be really interesting. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be really interesting. Yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, because again, like um, uh, I, I think you were alluding to, you know, we have um, in terms of just biodiversity generally, we have a tremendous amount of mitochondrial DNA data available on GenBank. You know, I mean, it's just, it's certainly for vertebrates. It's astonishing. And, you know, all of the cytochrome oxidase one, the CO1 data that's available as the, as the barcode gene that people are using, you know, tremendous amount of data um, from a biodiversity perspective. And, you know, if we could just believe it um, in terms of what it tells us, tells us about historical, you know, phylogenies, um, we would be way further along in the world of understanding the tree of life than if we have to worry about it and challenge it and stuff. And, and again, you know, it's an empirical question to some extent, right? Um, just, you know, how, how often is it misleading and how badly and are there certain signatures of that misleading, um, uh, you know, condition um, that if we could sort that out, I think would be a huge win for, you know, for just biodiversity studies in general. Right. Well, we're, we're getting up to the 90 minute mark, but we have a few more questions. Okay, sure. If you're, if yeah, that's sure. fine. If yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the one thing I, you brought this up a few times, this one was, it's one that to me is really fascinating, a painted turtle genome. Uh -huh. And so the landscape of that genome, particularly with respect to therapeutics for humans, uh, it probably by uh, the SLC2A1 gene. Yeah. That was one where for diabetes potentially and, and for anoxia, it's upregulated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there were some other immune function uh, analyses you did and, and, and some other um, interesting things mm -hmm. in some potentially even the pathway analyses. Yeah. I, I believe it was in that paper. Um, but just, all of that with respect to immune function, the, the potential therapeutics for humans. What, what do you think that the, the efficacy of that is? Do you think it, it's, you know, um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, some of it you do because it's interesting and you publish it at a time and a place where it's interesting and provocative and, you know, and fun at some level. Um, to, to think about those things that allows you, so that paternal genome, you know, we have 57, 58 authors, something like that. You know, it's just bringing in all these different labs and all these different perspectives um, on that genome. And um, that in and of itself was a, was, was a really, I think, a really great accomplishment. It was really, it was really interesting. It brought together a lot of different people so I've you know, maintained for 15 years, so I never would have done otherwise. Um, in terms of using, you know, very different species for therapeutics on humans, um, like turtles, um, or, you know, using 
genes associated with longevity or genes associated with their kind of very robust immune function um, on humans, you know, it, it's a dangerous dance. You know, there's there's been a lot of evolution between because, you know, what you're what you're doing, if you think about it again from a phylogenetic perspective, is you're you're kind of saying that, you know, that if if you think about it, you know, going from a painted turtle down to the most recent common ancestor of amniotes and then back up again to a human, you know, I don't know exactly, but you're at 600, 700 million years of evolution, yeah. right, along those branches, something like that. A lot can change. Yeah. And a lot of things that, you know, work in one lineage don't work in another lineage anymore. And so the the key to it, and I think the reason why the National Institutes of Health, for example, have been interesting interested in fleshing out the vertebrate tree of life um, with whole genomes is, is that the more you know that the, you know, mutations that we saw and the, and the signatures of selection that we saw in the painted turtle, at least if you know, you know, for all we know, you know, or knew then at least, you know, those could have evolved in Chrysomys picta, right? And be just totally unique to Chrysomys picta and have nothing to do with the general longevity of turtles, right? Um, you know, we didn't have any other turtle genomes. Well, fill in some more turtle genomes and ask, do those characterize all of turtles? Now at least you've got a handle on saying that those that those evolved features are associated with long lifespans or associated with certain immune functions across a clade. Then ask, you know, well, what about in crocodilians and what about in squamates and what about in, you know, in uh, in mammals and what about in, you know, in, you know, eutherian mammals and non-eutherian mammals. And, you know, and the more you can fill that in, and see what the history of those changes are and how those orthologs, those homologous genes yeah. are in those different groups. I think the, the stronger ground you're on for saying you can use them as therapeutics or use them to apply to a very disrelated you know, group. Because I mean, I think some you can and some you can't. I mean, ultimately, comparative data is only going to go so far. You're going to have to do experiments and you know, experiment with with you know living model organisms where where you can you can test those things. But I think at least filling in the phylogenetic tree with kind of key nodes is is a really important part of that. Right. It, it's maybe extrapolating from turtles to humans is kind of a jump. But if you can fill in the gaps, if you can between, fill in the gaps and you can yeah. sort of see what the changes are, and you know maybe that's a very you know maybe there's some very conserved genes in there. That haven't changed all that much, and those become much greater candidates for, you know, for therapeutics um, that uh, you might want to use in, in humans or other mammalian systems. Um, then ones that are evolving all over the place and evolving like crazy, those might be might be less attractive candidates. So, so I think filling that in really helps a lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that's that's yeah. good to know. That's something that's real interesting for uh, me. A lot of people yeah. in terms. Of potential career pathways. That's <laughs> Absolutely. Really
and in yeah. justification. Uh, another thing too. So we talked a lot. I think holistically, we've talked about a bunch of different aspects. I have phylogenetics, population genetics, genomics. Um, but there's kind of something that's outside. Not not maybe a hundred percent outside of this, but it's sort of a separate field. It's an mm -hmm. older field, epigenetics, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and I'm I'm sort of curious with turtles, what's known uh, with respect yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and you know this is a place where I'm pretty much even me a fight in terms of a lot of epigenetics work. And you know, I'll tell you one. Um, one of the, and, and the only application of uh, epigenetics, and this is DNA methylation, um, which you might be familiar with, that, um, that, that we've just started exploring in my lab, is um, that, you know, so, so methylation, you know, which is just attaching methyl groups onto parts of the DNA, and it, and it controls the expression of genes, it controls right. whether, whether Certain certain parts of your genome are going to be turned on or turned off, um, and methylation. Um, there's this concept of a of a DNA methylation clock. So within the lifespan of an organism, it, it's sort of a constant fraction of its genome tends to get methylated over time. So. Um, Two cool things about it that I think would be very, very relevant to things I'm interested in um, and with turtles as well as other organisms is that um, if you understand that DNA methylation clock and if it's and, and it, it appears based on my understanding of it, there's a real expert in this guy named Matteo Pellegrini, who's in our molecular cell biology department here at UCLA. Um, and, and Mateo is a real leading expert on this. Um, that clock is, is apparently pretty constant for different species. And what that means is, is that, um, you know, you go out and you study some population of turtles and you'd like to know how old they are. Okay, is this sort of an, you know, and especially with turtles, where we don't tend to see a lot of baby turtles, and oftentimes they're either in different microhabitats and we miss them, or they're all getting nailed by raccoons and skunks and rats and other nest predators. And so we have this, this notion of these kind of aging populations where everybody, there's still a lot of turtles around, you know, because they live for so long, but they're all old. And if there's not replacement going on, if it's a sort of unhealthy demography, then in another 30 years, that population is going to be gone because it's not recruiting. Well, there's all the difference in the world between those turtles being in a range of 10 to 50 years old, you know, and there's just sort of, you know, we're just not seeing new recruits. Maybe they come into the population slowly. But at least for adults, it's an even age distribution, as opposed to that, you know, they're all 40 years old, you know, because there hasn't been any recruitment in 40 years, because that means they're kind of heading towards the edge of the cliff. And the DNA methylation clock, at least in principle, allows us to figure that out simply by getting a sample, you know, a drop of blood 
and being able to study that. The, the other thing that is really cool with it is that the, the rate of DNA methylation within organisms, the, in other words, the rate of that clock increases with stress. And so something I've always wondered about is, you know, we have, for example, urban populations of turtles and lizards. Um, are they under a lot of stress? Are they, when you're stressed, you tend to be immunocompromised, your immune system doesn't work as well, you're more susceptible to diseases, all that kind of thing. If they're living in dirty water, if they're living in, you know, with very small population sizes where there's a lot of inbreeding, is their DNA methylation clock even more sped up because they're living under stressful conditions? Mm -hmm. And that might mean they're, they're, you know, they're in even more trouble than we understand. So anyway, those are two places where at least DNA methylation, which is a form of epigenetics, um, have been important. I'm sure there's lots of others, but I'm just not very educated on them. It's like a way to sort of quantify how well the population is doing. Is doing, yeah. yep. And we've got a couple of populations, not on turtles, but on toads and fence lizards. Um, to to look at that right now, a couple of a couple of new projects in line. Something I I know Jack who couldn't make it today was uh, pretty curious about is uh, the uh, sort of the the skull restructuring and megacephaly that occurs mm -hmm. in modern musk turtles. And yeah, if that because it's so dramatic that it's yeah. like within a right. lifetime, yeah. it, it's the whole skull is restructured. Yeah. So is there some level of it kind of goes against the high school biology notion of change over generation it's changed within a generation to a certain extent yeah well and you know australian side turtles um the genus emidura shows that megacephaly as well mm -hmm. and elsea does a bunch of them do um uh so i think the the there there's the there's there's the kind of almost pathological megacephaly and that you know uh, you know as, as i'm sure you know I mean, your bones are very, very fluid, mm -hmm. plastic, right. or you know, organs in your body, right? You know, you, you, your bones are changing all the time, and they 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 change with respect to stress, right? So you you know you can you know whatever if you've got a habit of cracking your knuckles all the time or something that'll you know that put certain stress points on your on your fingers and it and it changes the structure of your bones um, and and um, and your bones are actually a very responsive organ system yeah. and so my understanding is is that some of that megacephaly has to do with the prey that they eat if they're crunching on you know mollusks clams crabs all the time um, that puts different stresses and strains on the skull bones and the muscles, as the muscles hypertrophy, a lot of those muscles, like your temporalis muscles attach on the outside of your skull. And if those expand, then they kind of pull on those bones and that restructures your skull a bit. So there's that. Um, and, and that's, you know, in many ways, just sort of environmental plasticity or, or you know, pathologies, I think. Um, the more interesting one that, that I I think is a really interesting area to learn about is, is things like in the genus Graptonies, the map turtles, there's, you know, there, there's two major clades in the genus Graptonies. 
And in one of the clades, there's the narrow-headed and the broad-headed ones. Yeah. Right? So the broad-headed ones are things like like Polkra and Gibbon's eye. And, um, and you know, they're got, the females have these really big heads, and the females sort of specialize on mol on molluscivory, mollusks. The males have much more normal-sized heads, and, and they tend to uh, feed primarily on aquatic insects. How much of that is genetic and how much of that is is just environmental patterning that has to do with once you start eating mollusks, then you keep eating mollusks. The females also get bigger. Maybe they get to a point where they can start eating mollusks, then that hypertrophies their heads, whereas the males never get to that point. Or is there a genetic component? You know, usually in cases like that, some of it's genetic, some of it's environmental. And understanding those genes, I think, would be really interesting. Yeah, what's controlling that? What's controlling yeah. that? And you know, do we see those same genes controlling, you know, uh, megacephaly in, in, in other lineages where we see large-headedness in like, musk turtles or, you know, in, in keywords or whatever? Um, we had uh, Peter Lindemann on in, uh -huh. in the past yeah. on map turtles, and yeah, yeah. he did something... I'm sure you've seen the paper where he, but he looked sort of at the change of the characters over time and used some method, independent contrast to yep. look at, kind of correct for phylogenetic right. yes. yep. motion. But yep. that's the next level is figuring out where in the genome. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And is it, is it, you know, I mean, that, that megacephaly tends to be kind of phylogenetically conserved. Some map turtles do it. You know, Stratophorus does it, Endura does it. Um, that might imply that, you know, they're using the same genes, at least within map turtles, within graptomies. Um, but is that, yeah. is it the same genes as are being used right. over, you know, musk turtles where they haven't shared a common ancestor in 60 million years? Yeah. Um, those are really interesting questions. Like, yeah, where is the divide between phenotypic plasticity and genetic and genetics, and, and yeah. you know, and, and how what fraction of that variation is due to one versus the other? Yeah. And those are kind of classic questions in quantitative genetics that we can now get at in a very mechanistic way, right. um, whereas we never we never could before. And uh, I mean, that's part of the reason why, just as a project, we generated um, you know a decent reference genome for every family of turtles and we just wanted that to be available as a resource to people to be able to use that as at least a beginning platform to be able to do those kinds of yeah of analyses all right well so we we there's a few more just quick ones uh i'm, I'm sort of curious what the most um challenging project and if the most challenging project you've ever done with turtles has also been the most rewarding are those two things linked what's <laughs> no, the most challenging project i've ever done with turtles um that's a good question i would say the most challenging project i've ever done with turtles uh that i've finished let's let's go because yeah. <laughs> i'm in the middle of one that's also horribly challenging um was the paper that we just published a year ago, the Thompson et al. paper on the yeah. phylogeny of turtles. Um, and there we got, I don't remember, 80, 85% of the species of turtles, of living turtles and tortoises on earth and built a big uh, global phylogeny of them. 
And that project was challenging, not because the analysis was hard, not because of, of any of those technical things. It was challenging because it was so hard to get all the permits to be able to move those tissues across across international borders and boundaries. Um, and uh, the you know the TSA, who, who you know, um, Tourism Model Alliance, um, a lot of individuals there were really, really helpful. Um, it was a great, you know, collaboration about zoos, chipped in stuff. Um, but but a lot of it too was just trying to get samples from other countries and um, and you know so many turtles now are protected under CITES, you know, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. Um, they're red listed on the ICN. I think those are really important and really good moves um, for turtle conservation. But trying to then get all the permits in place across you know, probably you know, 100 countries um, is it just was a nightmare. It was just really, really challenging and lots of people helping us. So I'd say that was probably the most challenging single project that took forever. Again, not to do the molecular work, but to, but to get the permits. And we had to finally walk away from a bunch of things. You know, we had to walk away from species that, you know, I held in my hands in the country of origin, right. I caught them and collected them, but we could not get permission to move those samples across across the board. Um, I would also say that project was one of the most satisfying ones, you know, just because of the scope and, and completeness of it, um, and a very, very, very satisfying project. So there you go. Yeah, I'm always interested in sort of the driver of a lot. Of, I mean, it takes a lot of effort, which mm -hmm. is like, and it, that's something for a, a lot of scientists. I think it, 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 there's sort of this drive. Let's do the most cutting edge because that'll be the most rewarding and produce the most knowledge. So it's, but it's, it's not necessarily a given correlation. So it's no, no, it's no, it's not. Yeah. And um, it's it it's it's definitely not. But but you know, you hope there's at least some correlation because yeah, yeah, if not, yeah, you, do. <laughs> you know, you're just just you know killing yourself for no good reason then, right. right and that that doesn't make a lot of sense you probably your time and effort and energy is better spent yeah than on assuming that projects that are satisfying to you are also projects that are sort of important for the discipline right um, so that would be the hope so i'm assuming too you're mostly in the lab but i know you've done field work mm -hmm. and i'm curious what the most interesting experience it, it could be in the lab maybe that's where it was but doing turtle work the most interesting experience you've had something unexpected or interesting to you? oh i mean i think i think for me so i did um i did two sabbaticals in australia um in arthur george's yeah. lab and i can't remember if you've interviewed arthur if you're going in to but 10 days, in 10 days <laughs> yeah so arthur and i as i was telling you earlier you know we were born two days apart yeah and Completely independently, both, both became turtle nuts and um, got to know each other. Only I never met him. I went to Canberra and, and did my first sabbatical there. And um, there, the um, the main project the first time I was there. So you have to remember when I went to Australia to work on the Jesus Semidura. Um, 
uh, I had never thrown a turtle trap in the water before. I, I mean, that's more or less true. I mean, I, I was I was really new to the world of turtles. I had done a little tiny bit of work, and our goal was to trap Emidura in every permanently, permanently flowing river from their southernmost extent, which is right around Sydney in New South Wales, all the way up the East Coast, all the way around the Cape, all the way back around the Gulf of Carpentaria, over to the Kimberley Range in Western Australia, as well as the whole internal drainages of, of the Lake Erie drainage, the Cooper Creek drainage. And, uh, you know, including the Murray Darling, which is the biggest river system in Australia. Um, and we did that. And I'd never been to Australia. You know, we had an old beater, you know, 25-year-old um, little little Subaru that that um, I bought from Scott Thompson. Um, and uh, it, it's just, a, you know, just we... we uh, and and it was just an adventure like you can't believe. You know? Oh, I'm sure. There's figuring out how to trap turtles when there's saltwater crocodiles in the water. It was, you know, being places where you were, you know, 800 kilometers from the nearest paved road, and you're out there. I was out there with you know my son, um, who was uh, and he did kindergarten in in Canberra as well as eighth grade, um, but you know out from, you know. Putting putting little you know ornaments on eucalyptus trees Christmas Eve and then you know giving our this son a present you know because we're out camping in the middle of nowhere um, just <laughs> it just just from soup to nuts it was it was just amazing and getting to know Australia getting to know you know a lot of backcountry places um, you know in New South Wales Queensland the, you know the Northern Territory um, just just sort of across that whole big chunk of the continent um, doing it all just by ourselves um, it, it was really fun it was really just really 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 exciting and getting to know the Australians was was uh, was really great I mean there's other field work I've done in East Africa and Papua New Guinea and all across the U.S. and Mexico and California that you know, has resulted probably in more papers or more that kind of output. But but that that experience uh, was a real high point. That's awesome. Real, real high point. And that, that's the stuff you can't. I mean, uh, the the data is great, but there's so much more. To, yeah, yeah. Just, it's it's part of you know hopefully maturing as a scientist and uh, <laughs> uh, or at least having a good time. Right and uh, and meeting great people and you know just just a million good stories if you know you know some of them scary some of them many just wonderful but but uh yeah just really really good yeah yeah all right well we'll start to we'll just our last question we ask everyone sort of as we started um it, if you have one piece of advice for someone looking to make turtle work a career what would that be Turtle work. Research. Not research. Yeah, but, anything. But, I mean, yeah, related to turtles. Turtles is part or a an entire career. Yeah. yeah. I would say um I would say look seriously at yourself and ask yourself why are you in 
why turtles? Why turtles for you? Okay, and 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 build off of that. Um, so and and you know, if you just love them for whatever reason, that's one thing. If the fact that two thirds of the species are tanking and you really care about conservation, that's a very different thing. If you you know, um, if you're a hobbyist and you, you know, really would like to be able to breed turtles either because it would take pressure off natural populations for the, you know, for the herpiculturist community or just because you're interested, that's a different thing. But, but look deeply at yourself and understand why you care about them so much and, um, and try and put that into a broader framework. And I think if you can do that, it will at least tell you, you know, should I be, you know, a, a, a person who's working hard to figure out how to breed them for conservation or for the, you know, for the, for the trade? Um, or is it because I just find their ecology just so fascinating? Well, you know, that pushes you in a different direction. You might work for an NGO like the Nature Conservancy. Uh, you might work for the National Park Service. You might be an academic like me. Um, but but I, I think that's what I would tell people is, is to try to, to try to understand that yeah. um, and then and then work with it. I think the other thing is um, that I would say is people always say, well, you know, as long as you're passionate, just follow the passion. You know, yeah. that's kind of true. But, but it's so broad. Yeah. yeah. It, it, there's um, there's a limited number of opportunities. So <laughs> I think the other thing is, you know, be reasonable, right? Um, if you you know, there's, there are people who, I mean, you know, probably the best example is, is birds in the birding community, right? I mean, there's people who are, you know, the most insanely, I'm a pretty good birder and I like birding a lot. You know, there are people who are so good. It is just unbelievable how good they are. And, you know, they're total weekend warriors. They do it, you know, they've got a day job that pays the rent and then they're burgers, you know, on the weekends and they get immense satisfaction out of it. So it's not like you have to make a living at it, yeah. right? Um, and you can make huge contributions. I mean, I think the TSA is a, is a great example of that, of, of a collection of people who, you know, are from all walks of life zoos, academia, NGOs, um, as well as, you know, it's kind of a lousy word, but you know, hobbyists, you know, um, who are deeply knowledgeable, really know their stuff, you know, and have made major contributions to our knowledge of turtle ecology, morphology, natural history, conservation. Um, and, but, but they have a different day job, you know, and I think any of those work and you shouldn't be, I, I think, don't set yourself up for failure. Don't say, you know, if I can't be a professional, you know, herpetologist who studies turtles and that's all I do, um, then I'm going to consider myself a failure. That's the wrong attitude, you know. And I think the right attitude is, you know, find a way that works within, you know, you got to pay the rent, 
you've got to be a responsible human being in other ways. Um, and then, and then within that, how can you make contributions in what areas that you know that you find personally satisfying? I think that's really good advice, and all of us will take it for sure as best we can, and Very hopefully good. listeners can. I got to ask one more thing because you did sort of mention this, and and I asked you this in Spokane last year, and I thought your response was really interesting. Why turtles? Why 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 should people care about turtles? Why is it necessary? I don't remember what I said in Spokane. Well, yeah, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, um, whatever the well, I mean, so, I mean, I think, I think each individual sort of answers that question themselves. If you yeah. say, well, you know, you know, why are you interested in turtles or why am I interested in turtles? Those might, you know, for me, maybe it was those snapping turtles when I was a kid yeah. you know, in my yard in, in Connecticut. Um, I mean, I think, I think in a in a sort of general sense, why should people study turtles and why should people care about turtles? Uh, I mean, they are a. I mean, every lineage is unique. Every every species is unique, right? If it wasn't, we wouldn't recognize it as a species. So, so by definition, every lineage is unique. Turtles are. You know they're they're just they're bristling with so many features that have never evolved any other time. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the quintessential turtle character is you know putting putting your shoulder girdle inside your rib cage, right? I mean, just you know, ours floats on the outside of our rib right. cage, right? Like like any you know normal, well constructed animal. <laughs> you know, just imagine that your arms originated inside your rib cage you know you'd be walking around like this all the time yeah. because you know there's no room to maneuver i mean turtles are just they're they're so bizarre that i think that that sort of just makes them a target for study to try to understand how in the world this kind of crazy evolutionary novelty could have ever existed and you combine that with the fact that you know we just ruthlessly ruthlessly kill turtles you know and um i mean from a conservation point of view i've always felt turtles in many ways are a really interesting unique opportunity for me as a conservation biologist because we know exactly why two-thirds of the world's turtles are going extinct right and it's because we kill them yeah and that's something we can fix Right. That's, you know, we don't have to kill turtles and yet we do. And, you know, for the most part, it doesn't appear to be pollution. It doesn't, you know, they're very flexible, very, I mean, not every species, some are, some are very fussy, but, but an awful lot of them are very flexible, relatively generalist species that, you know, they can, they can take a lot of heat. And, um, and so as a conservation problem in conservation, you know, it's as much about awareness and human perception as it is um, anything else. And, and you know, that, that's something you can actually sink your teeth into and you can actually do something about. And um, so I think that's that's another reason to study one. Yeah, that's just interesting to ask everyone why, because that's mm -hmm. sort of the main, I think, a lot of us are still trying to figure it out. I, yeah. I don't know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and yeah. sometimes it's just some kind of, really? you know, 
you know, little kind of obsession that you have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a colleague of mine said to me one time, you know, you can, you can spend your life trying to figure out why you're so fascinated by something. Now, on the other hand, if it works for you, just go with it. Do it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I think that's a good way to, to finish it off. Yep. Uh, we've gone with time, but we also, we don't have to do this if you need to go, but we do like to do just a quick turtle trivia round at the end of everything. It's just a way to bring in weird random turtle okay. facts. So okay. I, I don't know if you've got a few turtle questions you want to toss up to us and we can try to answer them. <laughs> this is me asking you guys. Yeah. We, we can okay. give you some if you want. Well, uh, let me think. I like to tell people beforehand, but the past 10 people I've invited, I've forgotten to do it. It's, it's, it's just on the spot. It's, it's on the spot. <laughs> Let me think. So, a few questions for you guys. Yeah, anything. What else? turtle has the smallest geographic range in the world? Oh, that's a good one. I know the largest. Uh, and what's the largest? The largest is the scorpion though, turtle. Oh, 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 we're counting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm just conditioned not okay. to. <laughs> All right. So, so if Scorpioides got split up, though, then that would that would kill that. But what's the smallest? The, sm the smallest variety. I'm not sure. And Wyatt, you guys, you want to pitch in here? I, I mean, I want to say probably red-eared sliders. Right? The smallest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm seeing if I, you guys can can kick in on it. What would you think? The Quahulian box turtle comes to mind, but. Mm. Which one? Yeah, that's Wally and Box Turtle. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I wonder, and and I mean, it's just there in Quashianigus. That's a you know that that's probably a good a good one. I was going to go with Graptomys pearlensis. You know, okay, just in in the kind of lower Pearl River, uh, which is a pretty small drainage. But but I think Coila is a is a is a better one. Are there any? Now, of course, there's a there's a few species where we really don't know their their native range. There's a few Southeast Asian species of, yeah. of you know more enemies and stuff that we don't know or quoras. Um, Geometric tortoises could yeah, they, they've got they've got a really small range too, and I don't know how big the ranges of the Pixis species are. Um, but they're they're pretty small as well. But but I'll I'll bet you Coila, Terpinicola. I think that's a really good guess. That's um, good. Okay, let me think if I can come up All with right. another one. <laughs> uh, it's always tough on the spot. <laughs> yes. Um. I'll keep thinking. You got one for me. I'm th I'm thinking of something. That's the pro uh, Ken White. You guys got a question on hand? I got a really easy one, but I thought it was fun because we talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, what is the only amided species outside of North America? There's two, right? Oh shit! Okay, outside of. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're right. I totally disregarded. Right. There's, there's uh, Orbicularis and Trinacris. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, let me think. What turtle has the northernmost range distribution? Well, sea turtles. Uh, excluding sea turtles. Okay. okay, this one we are excluding sea well, turtles. Excluding sea turtles. Hmm. That's another. Well, okay, so I sliders technically. Uh, yeah, I, I did some work with that. They're fifty-five degrees north latitude in Russia. They've been reported, but they're not. It's but not they're viable. not native. Okay. Yeah, and they it's die. So, so it's so native. Yeah. Okay. okay. Native. Oh, native. Yeah, native. What would you say? Uh, okay. uh Peladiscus sinensis is a pretty far north range, doesn't it? Which one? Peladiscus sinensis. Yeah. European. But I think that um, I think uh, horsefield eye, the Russian tortoise, I think mm, probably okay. gets the furthest north. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'm pretty mm. sure almost that's different. that's right. We'd have to check. I don't know if you guys know. You probably do. Our uh, our uh, turtle taxonomy working group um, checklist of turtles of the world. We had Anders on. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. And you know now we've got really good accurate range maps and as well as body sizes um, and and stuff of, of every species on Earth. So um, you know I should know that since I've been an author on that since the very beginning. But um, I I think it's worse fell by. I, I think that's right. It's close between that whole. Yeah, thing. yeah, right. But but uh, no, but good. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure they would be the most northern. Huh. Um, cool. Yeah. All right. That's okay. great. Well, that was good. Uh, and I think we'll end it there. Uh, for everyone listening, this is episode forty-one. I'm Dr. Brad Schaefer. Thank you again for coming on. And it thank was, you guys. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and really a lot of fun uh i'm gonna have to go back and look at the other 40. yeah so. <laughs> yeah, yeah i'll, I'll send you a link but yeah it's, okay. it's been an honor and uh just for all of us i think just growing yeah. up reading all of your stuff it's really well thank yeah. you thank, thank you. you thank you very very much really appreciate it cool okay. we'll see you in the keep next it up one. you guys <laughs>